welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. On today's Dispatches podcast, I talk to Dr Rich Willis and his colleague and friend Richard Fisher, the founder and director of the Vickers Machine Gun Research Association, on their recent on their recent work into the legend that ten Vickers guns of the Hundredth Machine Gun Company in August 1916 fired off one million rounds in a 12-hour period during the fighting at Highwood, at the Battle of the Somme. I spoke to Richard and Rich from their respective homes in England. Hi, Richard and Rich. Welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Can you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Yeah. Hi, Tom uh, and hi, Rich. Uh, it's great to be uh, on the podcast. It's uh, listen to loads of them, and it, so it's great to be on them. So a little bit about my my story. Mine's mine's relatively recent, actually. It only goes back as far as I think 2017. My mum and uh, my auntie, uncle, and my mum's cousin, uh, we went across to Ypres. To commemorate, to commemorate my great-great-uncle, who was a sergeant in the London Irish Rifles, and he was killed on what turned out to be a fairly futile trench raid in April 1917. Um, we visited him, he's remembered, on the on the Menin Gate. And then later that year, uh, and this is really when the story probably kicks off, my mother-in-law, Sue, she asked me to do her family tree, which was something I'd not done before, and, and I think well, a lot of listeners will 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 have found the same route that I did. In terms of her, there was the usual skeletons in in the cupboard that you find in every family. But also, I came across this young man, uh, Sergeant Harold Bertram Blore, known as Bert, from the Machine Gun Corps, of which I I'd heard nothing about, didn't know anything about them at all. Born in 1900 in the Jewelry District in Birmingham, and he died of his wounds in Rouen in August 1918, age just 18. So he was a sergeant, 18, and little did I know that it would sort of turn into a, a fairly strong passion that I've got. So how did he end up in Rouen? So I produced a family tree, presented it to her with a few stories, one of which was Bert. And and it's Bert's story that's really kept nagging at me since that date. And I had a load of questions, but no answers, really. So I started digging and digging and digging. And I guess, like many listeners, um, as I say, it's become a fairly fairly strong obsession, a bit like a cult in some ways, uh, to try and find out more. But, you know, his, his service record, like lots of them, no longer exists. But he did have a, a, an entry on something called the Du, du Revigny's uh, Roll of Honour. Uh, which sort of unlocked some of his story. And I knew I didn't have the skills or knowledge really to, to go much further. So I, I, I engaged a couple of historians and they gave me some, some background to it. And then I started reading about the subject, about the machine gun corps. Well, actually lots of reading uh, and, and trying to understand what this regiment was, what, the, what these battalions were, how they worked. And that's when I first found the story, came across the story about the million rounds. Richard, what's your background? So mine goes back a little bit longer, perhaps, maybe uh, nearly 30 years now when my we were clearing out some of the family houses around the village back in the early 90s. I was well, nine or 10 years old uh, then and showed an interest in various things that were there, including the, the medals that were on the wall of a guy called Edgar Hinton. And he'd been my great great uncle, and he was killed in in the in the First World War, twenty first of March ish. 
So you know, uh, Kaiser Schlack in 1918, we had his medals and, and a couple of certificates and, and some of the insignia. His brother was taken prisoner the same day and we had the letters and, and bits and pieces that he brought home as well. So that got me interested in the military side of things, militaria in general, sort of a bit of a collector's mind going on because there was there were other things in the house because it was a sort of rather large house um, that had been used as a first aid post, billets for RAF officers that were, were located nearby and, and other things as well. And that got my great war interest going. But the, the machine gun side of things actually comes from my grandfather, who was also a Hinton, John Hinton. He was a machine gunner in the Second World War. Talking to him got my interest in the machine gun side of things going a little bit more. And I had the opportunity when I was just 12 to buy a deactivated Vickers machine gun. So 25 years ago this, this year, really. And that set my interest going in. To start with the Second World War stuff, how did my grandfather use it? But then broadening that out to what I have now, which is just an interest in how the Vickers machine gun was used across all of its service from its inception in 1908, its adoption by the British Army in 1912, all the way through to the late 60s to 1968 by the British Army, and even being used into the 1980s by the South Africans. So not just a, a British or Commonwealth focus, but very much that wider ranged anything to do with the Vickers machine gun and, and how it was used, but all stemming back to, to three medals and a, and, a, and a death penny on the wall in one of our sort of local houses here. We're going to talk about the, the truth or otherwise of the story that consists of 10 Vickers machine guns of the 100th Machine Gun Company firing a million rounds in a 12-hour period at Highwood during the Battle of the Somme. Could you start by telling us where this story originates from? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's probably the well the most well known story from of machine gun action, arguably in the whole of the Great War. Uh, and in my case, as I as I read a few books and a few books more, they this story always was repeated. It all, it was always appearing in every book that that, that I seem to read anyway. And then when it was repeated, it was it was done almost word for word every time. So this this the story is that the um, 100th Machine Gun Company, uh, the officer commanding that was uh, a Scot called Captain Graham Seaton Hutchinson. Call him Hutchinson. He is often called Graham Seaton Hutchinson, but it's Hutchinson. And he's a, he's a fascinating and, and fairly controversial figure. We might come on to that at, at, at later if you have time, I guess. But the first account was written immediately after the war in 1919, and it was credited to the members of the battalion, although the book was promoted and actually illustrated by Hutchinson himself. It's worth mentioning Highwood. So in August, uh, where the attack took place in August 1916, the fighting centred on the BEF's attempts to capture Highwood. And this action was yet another attempt to push the Germans out of the wood. Um, so I'm sure, again, many of you listeners will, will know exactly where Highwood is. It's about two kilometres northwest of the village of Longueval on the road to Corselet. And if you go out the village, the sort of ro- the road climbs fairly slowly up uh, from the village up towards Highwood. It's not really much of a, of a hill, I, I would guess. It's not very high, but in, I guess in the context of the Somme battlefield, it sits on top of a fairly prominent position, I would, I would say. And so m- many who know the area, Highwood's has a fairly, in its own ways, a fairly mythical place on the Somme. Uh, one historian I know says he gets goosebumps when he walks Highwood, almost like there's some sort of ghostly presence there. 
so yeah, it's 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 a fairly well known place. It's a fairly well known story. Uh, it first appeared in 1919, but then it was it was recounted in many other books. Sometimes uh, with slight variation, but almost always almost verbatim. So, uh, 1938, the now retired Lieutenant Colonel Hutchison describes the events in in his book, Machine Guns: Their History and Tactical Employment, which is also, I guess, a first one of the first attempts to the history of the machine gun corps. 1942, you'll see this theme throughout the studies of this of this action. It's a Professor A.M. Lowe was the next of many to write about the story in, in his book, Musket to Machine Gun. Uh, there's a little bit of a hiatus, but then in 1971, Hobart, who's a lecturer on infantry, on infantry weapons at the Royal Military College, Shrivenham, cited the story and his reputation added further credibility to the to the story. And so the, through the 70s, there was a period, I guess, of increased interest in the Great War. And this also had further coverage of the story. So Crutchley, that's a fairly famous book in 1975 called Machine Gun in 1914-18, which was published by the Machine Gun Corps Old Comrades Association. And then in 1994, Dolph Goldsmith, who wrote The Grand Old Lady of No Man's Land. And it also appears in lots of other places. So there's also more famous historians like the late great Richard Holmes and even the current WFA president, Professor Gary Sheffield, have also featured the story in their writing. So it's got traction and, and, and also credibility. But none of these authors seems to have gone back to the original primary sources to verify it, which I, I guess I found a bit strange. Um, they're just taking it at face value. I think sometimes these, these stories become legend and they become sort of almost fact, don't they? But sort of turning to the, as you said, the, the myth or the, you know, the story, is there any official basis to it? Well, to say the story is a myth, Tom, but I guess my question to myself was how many, how come so many people, many of them really highly respected historians, tell the same story? So my starting position was to really try and identify those original sources of data, sources of information, plus unearth any, anything else that I could find from war diaries or anywhere else I could I'd identify that might corroborate or, or contradict the story. Because I wanted to sort of unpick it sort of piece by piece, then put it back together before making what I hoped was a fairly objective assessment to definitively prove or disprove the story. We all love a good myth. We all love a good story. And, and sometimes those ones that aren't quite true, potentially more interesting than ones that are. So I wanted to say, you know, is it true? Isn't it true? Is it possible? Could it be done? Etc. So I guess I realised at this point I haven't actually described the story yet. So here it is. So this is taken, and I'll, I'll, do, I'll read it out because it, it's, it's sort of fairly fundamental to the, the event. So it comes from Hutchinson's account from 1919. So he starts, For this attack, six guns were grouped in Savoy Trench, from which a magnificent view was obtained of the German line at a range of about 2,000 yards. These guns were disposed for barrage. On the 23rd of August and the night of the 23rd, 24th, the whole company was, in addition to two companies of infantry lent for the purpose, employed in carrying water and ammunition to this point. Many factors in barrage work, which are now common knowledge, had not been then learned or considered. It is amusing today to note that in the orders of the 100th Machine Gun Company's barrage of 10 guns, Captain Hutchison ordered that rapid fire should be maintained continuously for 12 hours to cover the attack and consolidation. It is to the credit of the gunners and the Vickers gun itself that this was done. During the attack on the 24th, 250 rounds short of 1 million were fired by 10 guns. 
at least four petrol tins of water, of water, besides all the water bottles of the company and urine tins from the neighbourhood, were emptied into the guns for cooling purposes and a continuous party was employed carrying ammunition. Private Robert Shaw, be careful how I say it, Artificer, who's an armourer, H. Bartlett, between them maintained a belt filling machine in action without stopping for a single moment for 12 hours. At the end of this time, many of the NCOs and gunners were found asleep from exhaustion at their posts. A prize of five francs to members of each gun team was offered and was secured by the gun team of Sergeant P. Dean, DCM, with a record of just over 120,000 rounds. The attack on the 24th of August was a brilliant success, the oper operation being difficult and all objectives being taken within a short time. Corporal Smith, Corporal Hendry, Lance Corporal Sorby, and Gunners McIntyre and Auden, both the latter acting as runners, were all awarded the mil military medal. Prisoners examined at divisional and corps headquarters reported the, that the effect of the machine gun barrage was annihilating, and the counterattacks which had attempted to retake the ground lost were broken up whilst being concentrated east of the Flare Ridge and of Highwood. So the story contains an absolute wealth of information that helped me pinpoint loads of loads of elements to it. So it mentions Savoy Trench, so we know the location. The barrage firing at a range of 2,000 yards towards Highwood, 23rd, 24th of August, 1916, so we know the exact date. Companies of infantry carrying parties, carrying the 303 ammo boxes. 10 Vickers machine guns firing for 12 hours. 250 rounds short of 1 million. So that's 999,975 rounds. And then this next bit, I, I always think is a bit like the tiger who came to tea. So the things to, to carry the water. Four petrol tins, all of the water bottles for the company, all of the urine tins. It also mentions uh, Private Robert Shaw. And yes, he is a relative of the wonderful Andy Robert Shaw. And an artist, if uh, Bartlett uh, maintained something called a belt filling machine, which I had no clue what that was, without stopping for 12 hours. Many of the men were so tired that they were asleep from exhaustion. Sergeant P. Dean wins uh, five francs for firing off the most rounds. Five men awarded a military medal. Prisoners tell of the fire being so fierce that it was annihilating. So it gave me plenty of places to go digging for bits, different bits of the story. And here's where I confess that my background isn't as a historian, but I'm pretty effective at looking for stuff and identifying sources. My specialism, I guess, where I gained my PhD was looking at strategy and organisation change. So I've got a decent understanding of research methods and how to sift out relevant information from the irrelevant, which definitely helped. Turning to the myth, was there any official basis for the story? Intriguingly, the answer is both yes and no. And, and here's where the story wavered really between myth and truth. So the 100th Machine Gun Company sat within the 100th Brigade in the 33rd Division in 1916. There's several pages in the Brigade War Diary about the attack. Uh, but nothing specifically about the machine gun barrage on that date. It does mention, obviously, that it was part of the 100th Brigade was the 2nd Worcesters, 16th King's Royal Rifle Corps, 1st Queen's, 9th Highland Light Infantry, and the 1st Middlesex. But the, it, And again, here's where the uh, Brigade War Diary starts to muddy the waters, because it introduces not 10 guns, but 16 guns. But we do know that the positions of those guns. It starts to become a little bit confusing from, from the reader's point of view. But I guess, unsurprisingly, the, the War Diary of the Machine Gun Company, the 100th Machine Gun Company, gives the most detail since it was written by Hutchison himself, including some of, some of his handwritten notes. It lists in detail the preparation for the barrage, 
Uh, it lists the six guns in Savoy Trench, plus actually it does mention another ten guns, uh, nine nine used for the attack and one in reserve. So they both sort of start to corroborate the story, but they also then contradict his 1919 publication. So the War Diary it tells of the actual events in a, in, a, in a fairly good sequence. So again, I'll just I'll just read those out because they're, they're quite instructive. So 3 p.m. the artillery bombardment starts. Uh, zero hour for the attack is 5:45. Uh, and at that point, intense fire is opened from indirect and direct positions in Savoy Trench. There's a ceasefire at 6.25 after reports that some sh shots are going short. All the machine guns are checked and found correct. 6.40 again, another ceasefire. Delay, all up. 6.45, an intense barrage in support of our troops starts and the enemy is observed fleeing and one gun directed at them. So that could be the annihilating fire that potentially we, we hear earlier. 7.40, Water began, began to grow scarce, appeared to be no mechanical difficulties, all guns are going well, and these belt-filling machines are also working well. Eight o'clock, guns stopped and checked alternately, overhauled, cleaned, new barrels and relayed. And at this point, I'm into absolutely no unknown territory in terms of my knowledge. I haven't got a clue what you know, one half of this stuff is. <laughs> but I will learn this at some point in the future. 8.10, urgent messages send for SAA, small arms ammunition, which is running short. And at this point, it mentions the first number of rounds fired. It says 67,000 rounds fired up to date. Parties of HLI, Highland Light Infantry collected to carry water and SAA. Water bottles sacrificed for three guns. No cessation of fire. Barrage, in some cases, slightly raised. So 8, 10 o'clock in the evening, several hours after it, the, the attack had commenced, it was the first time any number of rounds mentioned, and that was just 67,000, not 670,000. So that's a long way to go to get to 1 million rounds. 8, 10 in August, so it's it's high summer, but it will be starting to get dark soon, so I'm guessing the, 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 the attack will start to peter out as it gets dark. And then there's no entries from 8.10 until the, the last entry, which is at 6.10 on the 25th. 6.10, ceasefire, gunners exhausted, guns overhauled, relief and sentries posted, parties bringing 30 boxes SAA and 20 water-filled tins. Total number of rounds fired, XXXXXA. Won't spoil the end of the story. And I guess here's where, for me, where the story takes some really quite surprising turns. So I was fairly keen to publish the story. So I knocked it up a draft fairly quickly, uh, but it lacked some decent context, some decent background and, and quite a lot of technical detail towards it. So I was aware that I needed a crash course in how the Vickers gun worked. And I knew next to nothing about the gun, the ammunition, how it was set up, or this sort of strange belt filling machine that seemed to be fairly central to the story. So I needed an expert and all roads seemed to lead to uh, my colleague on the call, Richard Fisher. And for me, there was nobody on the planet better place to help me navigate the, the Vickers than Richard. So that brings me to question three in a very very good segue. Richard, could you tell us about the Vickers machine gun and why they were organised into companies of the machine gun corps? So the Vickers machine gun had been used by the British Army since 1912. It was a replacement for the Maxim, which had been in service since 1892, 1896, may well be uh, wrong there, but certainly the, the early to mid 1890s. And it was a it was a water-cooled machine gun. So what that meant was, you know, as you're firing a, a gun at any rate, you know, bolt action rifle or otherwise, the barrel gets hot. When that barrel gets hot, the metal expands. And when that metal expands, it, stop thing, it stops either accuracy, because uh, the metals change shape and these barrels are, are quite you know, sensitive things, or it 
in the case of the machine gun, an automatic weapon, actually, yeah, the barrel moves. So if that swells up, it means that you know, the, the gun will seize up because the barrel can't move. It, it's exceeding its tolerances. So, so water, so the barrel sits in a, uh, a jacket of water, which in the case of the, the Vickers is about seven and a half pints. Um, that becomes quite important as we sort of delve into this story a little bit more. But it means it can do sustained fire. It can fire at the same target for a long period of time. And, and with the Vickers, it's belt fed. So you've heard about belts of ammunition. It's got a cloth and metal belt. So the uh, a, a cloth base with these little metal brass tabs that keep a little bit of distance between the rounds because they need to, to be able to go through the feedlock. And each one of those belts holds 250 rounds. Box of, of 250 rounds weighs 22 pounds, very slightly, but around 22 pounds, which in new money is 10 kilos. You need substantial numbers of these. But the Vickers was also tripod mounted. So many listeners will, will, have, will, will have seen them. You know, it's, it sits on quite a hefty tripod, weighs nearly 50 pounds. The gun itself, when it's full of water, weighs about 40 pounds. And then each of these boxes of ammunition. So it's, it's quite a lot of, of weight and material and equipment to be carrying. So each machine gun crew, certainly at this point in the war, is about eight men. Their roles vary. But you've got numbers one through to number eight, whereas the number one is the firer of, of the machine gun. Number two is the, the um, belt, lo- the, the assistant the um, sort of lies alongside the gun, feeding the belts into, into the gun. And then you've got numbers three and four, which basically move backwards and forwards, carrying up water, carrying ammunition to the gun position. Uh, numbers five and number six are the scout and the range taker. So those are the guys that are helping, uh, helping the section officer. Uh, work out the targets, work out ranges to the targets, or in the case of a barrage, probably just helping carry ammunition, um, move things forward, or even taking over on the gun, because they'd all be trained machine gunners. You've then got numbers seven and eight, and they would be operate in this the, the belt filling machine, uh, replenishing spare parts, and you're working with the section to make sure that everything's going well. The Vickers machine gun and the Maxim that, that it replaced so at the start of the war, we have the Maxim in 1914 gradually being replaced with the Vickers. And there's only 112 Vickers machine guns in the British Army at that time. But by the end of the war, we've got you know, half of that per division, let alone, sorry, more, more than half of that per division. Uh, so you can see that actually wartime efforts ramped up production quite a lot. By 1916, We've got the machine gun corps formed, and they're all armed with, with with Vickers machine guns at this point. So the Maxim's been fully replaced and basically obsolescent. They're being used at least in pairs. A Vickers machine gun's not much use on its own. It's the sustained fire, the, the how it fires. Uh, it's not a it's not an accurate weapon as we'd think of a rifle. Every tar- every round hit in the same tar- same you know, point on a target every time. It creates what's called a beaten zone which is uh, sort of an elliptical shape in the way that the ammunition falls because the tripod will move, uh, the gun will move as it, as it recoils and goes backwards and forwards. And so it creates this beaten zone area uh, that varies depending on what, uh, what size uh, or what distance you're firing at. So you want another gun at least to overlap in that beaten zone. And it, the mass number of guns that you can get together uh, increase the density of ammunition falling in that elliptical shape. So one of the reasons that we start to see guns organising into companies, because when we start the, the Great War, we've got two guns per infantry battalion. They're really forming the, the fire 
element of fire and movement for the whole battalion. They're providing supporting, flanking, overhead fire um, to, to enhance the capabilities of the battalion. We soon see that ramped up to four guns per battalion, and that, that's how it sits in early 1915. But those four guns are still under the command of the, uh, the commanding officer, the lieutenant colonel in, in charge of that infantry battalion. And over, over 1915, we've seen guns start to be brigaded together a lot more. So when, when we say that, and we mean that every infantry brigade has its four, um, four infantry battalions, we start to see uh, a brigade machine gun officer who's not part of any of those battalions, or he's probably you know, come from one of them, but has some specific machine gun related training, sets out fire plans, uh, machine gun barrage plans on how the 16 guns, so you know, four battalions of their four guns each, can work together. But that's still only a, a, a sort of command and control kind of role. And it's down to the administrative burden of the individual battalions uh, for them to, to get the ammunition and everything through their supply lines. What it also means is the trained officer, the subaltern, that is running the machine gun sections, when he gets promoted, he goes into his battalion. He's going to become a, a captain or a major a company commander somewhere in that battalion. Not necessarily, So his machine gun knowledge is lost. So what we see form towards the end of 1915 are these brigade machine gun companies and then subsequently uh, with army order 414 in october we see the machine gun corps being formed which puts all the command the control and the administration together that we have a brigade machine gun company of the machine gun corps attached on a one-to-one -one basis which each of the brigades in the infantry division so how did the role of the machine gun change over the over the course of the war certainly the traditional view of how machine guns are set up and used is that they'll sit in that front maybe second line trench and they will fire at targets they can see you know they, this is the direct fire role they'll fi you know, fire at those targets which is you know is often thought to be left to the individual you know, the machine gunner that sat behind the vickers at that point he can see a target he'll line up his sights and he'll fire upon it and certainly that does happen but once the machine gun corps is formed and the vickers machine guns are, uh, become a specialism in themselves and you know in an arm of armor service in the british army they're replaced in the infantry battalions with lewis automatic rifles lewis light machine guns uh, magazine fed air cooled not set up for sustained fire in the same way as the vickers but those those Lewis guns start to do that direct fire role, whilst it you know, isn't lost from the Vickers. We certainly see the machine gunnery as a specialism and machine gunnery as an art move and leap forward in wartime. So we see the indirect fire role being much more commonly associated with Vickers. And indirect fire, I mean by that, they're firing at targets they can't see. Now, that could be because it's obscured by smoke, fog. It could be nighttime. Um, it could be over the crest of a hill. You know, you best site for, for machine guns on the, you know, as it would be for artillery. And this is some of the skills that we start to see transfer across. Stick them on the rear slope of a hill and they'll fire over the crest of that hill onto the target. And in a battlefield full of machine gun fire, you don't have you know, sound um, ranging or anything like that. You've got no big muzzle flashes if they're behind a hill. You've got no tracks of shells to be able to trace or anything like that. So they're relatively um, you know, hidden. Uh, you, you can't see them. So we, we certainly see indirect fire becoming the specialist arm of the machine guns. And as the war progresses, we've got these machine gun companies of 16 guns each attached to each brigade. In 1917, we see a fourth company, uh, which acts as a reserve or as a divisional machine gun company. So suddenly uh, across the division, we've now got 64 guns that can work together. 
uh, under a um, a divisional machine gun officer. So four four companies that can be brought together. And then towards the end of the war, where we're using barrage fire much more effectively, and we're incorporating it into the mixed fires plans of artillery, uh, the trench mortars. We've got forward and reserve guns, so or forward and rear um, guns. So you might get a company with 16 guns that are going to move forward with an attack, you might, and then 16 guns as a kind of support that with overhead or indirect fire. And you might see those companies split up, but you, you know, they're performing slightly different roles, and that's the doctrine of the day. So you start to see them being used in different ways, supporting much bigger attacks. And with 64 guns, then in the last year of the war, those formed into machine gun battalions. One of the, one of the challenges, although we've got the command and control of a divisional machine gun officer, uh, they still don't have the administrative um, ability and they don't actually have, you know, in the machine gun corps, you've almost got a ceiling for promotion at company commander uh, if, you, if you've got nothing beyond that. So, you know, it, you, by introducing the battalions commanded by a lieutenant colonel, you start to be able to see how the um, how the 64 guns can be used together in mass barrage in much more effective manners, supporting a whole division rather than just the individual brigades. So essentially what we're talking about today is an attack um, or the machine guns of the 100th machine gun company are putting down a barrage in, in the manner that you've described. Yeah, that's right. So what you've got is that company under the command of Hutchison, captain at the time, he will be he will have total autonomy in a way to feed in, uh, to, to determine how his machine guns are going to work. And he'll be fe feeding into the brigade orders, the brigade meetings of that attack um, as the specialist person for machine guns. So were the 10 Vickers machine guns capable of firing a million rounds in the designated or the, the told 12 hours? Yeah, that's that's really a, a, a good leading question because at various times, certainly in my research, I, I wavered between the absolutely impossible to absolutely possible. And that was really due to my 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 poor knowledge of the actual the, the mechanisms and the workings of the Vickers machine gun. So, I had this this sort of perception in my mind that all they all all the machine guns did was effectively bang away with firing 500 rounds a minute. We've seen them in the films, you know. So you multiply that by by 500 a minute times you know 60 minutes in an hour times 12 hours times 10 guns, and you get to a number that's actually well in excess of a million rounds so you know feasibly it's possible but then you have to bring in all of these other things that i didn't really know about much at the time so a million rounds of ammo how do you supply a million rounds of ammo where do you get that all from so would would the would the machine gun company have access to a million rounds of ammo um and and that's certainly where i started to turn turn to to richard's expertise yeah so was a vickers was a vickers machine gun capable of firing a million rounds um, in 12 hours, or were 10, 3.6 million rounds to, to follow on the maths piece. And yes, technically, the Vickers is. It fires at about 450 to 500 rounds a minute at its full you know, cyclical rate. Uh, and you can put bouts in and you know, fire at the rapid rate. That's what um, Hutchison says in one of his accounts. That, you know, he, he made the orders to put the guns to fire at their rapid rate, which is, we've got different rates of fire um, in the First World War, we, we've got different practical rates. Um, 
there's there's rapid which is the maximum you've got medium rate of fire which is you know one bout per gun per two minutes and then slow one bout per gun per four minutes uh, and the re those are important because they actually determine how much water you're going to use as well the faster you fire the hotter the gun gets the faster the water will boil uh, so I, I mentioned about seven and a half pints in the water jacket that boils up after about a thousand rounds. And then for every further 500 rounds at the rapid rate, you'll lose a pint of water as steam uh, that you can condense that. And, and for those that can, can visualize the Vickers, they, they'll, they'll see a tube that comes out of the front of the gun there and often seen going into a, a two gallon can, a petrol can possibly. Um, and, and, and that is how the water's recycled. Uh, its original tension wasn't to recycle water. Its original tension was to stop plumes of steam giving away the gun position. So actually, they, they start off just going into a, a, into a wet bag, condensing bag to, to stop that steam being formed, and then realize that water becomes incredibly valuable. So we're going to put it into a solid container like a petrol tin. If you keep that gun cooled, there is nothing to say that it can't sustain um, your temperature guns can't sustain a million rounds in 12 hours perfectly capable of doing so on a technical basis but it's the logistics as as rich alludes to that are the problem and so tell us about that logistical support um, to carry out this operation and also i wonder this is something i haven't added is i'm just wondering about the technical wear on the on the weapons themselves so uh, just cover off that first piece first um, you know, sorry, that second second piece first. The technical wear of the weapon. We we know from later experiments. There's small arms committee minutes. There's later uh, military college of, of science analyses that are done on wear and tear of the weapons. And most of them, with relatively minor breakages, will last for under a thousand rounds quite easily. There's a later uh, story that, um, just as as an anecdote here that I went to look to after we'd looked at looked at this story of uh, one of the last armorers courses in the 19 in 1960 um, or in, in the 1960s of how they fired a, a Vickers machine gun one Vickers machine gun constantly for seven days and seven nights that's that's what the story goes to um, and that's what's used and I actually got in touch with the originator of that story managed to speak to him directly and he said no that story is wrong what actually happened is we gave up after seven days and seven nights because it was just going and going and going. They weren't firing at the rapid rate. They were firing at a much slower rate of, uh, of, Sort of one bout every um, every few minutes, but they were using ammunition, and because it was the end of life of 303 and the obsolescence of the Vickers machine gun, so they proved they were um, Royal Electrical and Mechanical Engineer Armourers. They were on a course, and they had this option to to do this, and they said trucks and trucks of ammunition were just being used to show that only minor breakages would in would would occur and it wouldn't have a problem. Now, I've fired the Vickers a number of times, uh, and yes, you, you, you will have these one minor breakages that only take a matter of moments, actually one or two minutes to repair. So a broken lock spring, which is, to, which, which is part of the heart of the gun, it can take mere seconds to repair. And what you actually do is take that out hand it to one of the other guys in the section, the number three, the number four, he'll hand you a complete one out of the spare parts case, you put it back in, while you're firing your next, you know, in this case, thousands of rounds, he'll be repairing it with one of the other small parts and getting it ready for you. Very rarely, if you can keep it sustained with water, and that's you know, the main thing, you don't want it to overheat and start to seize up, uh, you can fire the gun. 
and that's technically capable of doing so. But as I said, you need ammunition, you need water. You don't necessarily need lots and lots of spare parts. And, and Hutchison doesn't talk about lots and lots of spare parts being required. You've, you've got some basics that are carried within every section. And those seem to cover most of uh, all eventualities. He talks about the artificer uh, actually just operating the belt filling machine, which is where I'll start with the logistics, really. Ammunition, 250 round belt boxes and Hutchison's account talks about SAA boxes as well, small arms ammunition boxes. That's a, a wooden box of a thousand rounds of ammunition. Uh, that's not in the Vickers ammunition belt. Uh, so the other men of the section, what they would have to do is use the belt filling machine, which is carried on one for every other gun. It's a um, almost like a, 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 a yeah, meat mincer or... Um, uh, well, I'm trying to think of other analogies, really, but it, it's, a, it's a mechanical piece of kit, clamps onto the, the, a table or a piece of wood, or actually it clamps onto the, uh, the trail for the limbered wagon, which these guns were, were carried into in every pair of limbered wagons. Um, and it, it clamps on there. You put ammunition in the hopper at the top, you put your ammunition belt in, you wind the handle, and between two of you, it fills an ammunition belt. Fills an ammunition belt in about 10 minutes. So you can see it does actually take quite a bit of time. And when Rich first came came here for a chat about your know, Vickers ammunition um, and this belt filling machine that he'd read so much about, you know, we, we tried it and it is increasingly uh, it's quite slow, slow process, uh, partly because the ammunition, the belt filling machine I've got is over 100 years old um, and I don't use it regularly. So let's say you know, it could be done you know, a lot quicker uh, by trained soldiers with brand new out of the box belt filling machines that didn't have worn springs and parts but even so ammunition the belt filling for this is absolutely critical because if you can visualize how many rounds of ammunition you'd need uh how many boxes of small arms ammunition there's only so many uh, belt boxes in a in a machine gun company so you'd need um you know we, we did some of the maths on this in, in quite uh, quite a lot of detail we worked out that at the start of the operation they had 166,000 rounds uh, available for them they would have needed an additional 964 small arms ammunition boxes so small you know the, the thousand round boxes and filling those 9,000 964,000 rounds would have taken 1,285 man hours. That you know, working through contemporary information on how they filled the how the belt filling machines worked from the training manuals that we got, we've got here in the archive from yeah. other I mean, things it was, as it well. Was it was quite interesting because we, we, we are not, like Rich says, we, we had to go at effectively cranking the handle. And it, it's, it's, a, it's a whole turn of a, of, a, of a crank, 360 degrees, to, to just load one, one single round. And so they've got to load, load 250 yeah. into a belt. At some point, they'll have to load a million rounds into these belts. So you're going to get incredible repetitive strain injury cranking your handle for no, for hours to support these guns yeah one of the things that Hutchison only mentions though is these, these two guys that are using the belt filling machine whereas actually across 16 guns in the company across 100th machine there were eight of these belt filling machines available uh, and, and when we look in the war diary it's a little bit more detail about how that they were being used but he, you you can, you can reduce the amount of belt filling time by having more and more people allocated to it so you bring down that number that 1285 man hours even even further but what we did sort of work out was that it would take almost a week ahead of the operation to 
to prepare the number of bouts of fire, uh, so the number of bouts of ammunition ready to fire this million rounds, uh, rather than just 12 hours overnight. So, you know, starting to um, unpick uh, the story just by looking at the ammunition itself. It's a real challenge because when you when you start to think of that, what we also realised was it would be useful to work, look at the ammunition columns, look at the weekly averages for you know, small arms ammunition, how, how much was being used. We, we realised that actually the if we had one million rounds being fired, that would have been 2.9%, you know, nearly 3% of the total reserves of small arms ammunition in France for that day. So just for one operation, small amount here was going to use 3% of the ammunition. And although you know, these actions are, are quite a large scale, uh, and we understand that, for, for these guns, we feel that that would have been mentioned elsewhere as well. And, and it wasn't, which is another sort of nagging uh, trait of this of this tale. So so that sort of ammunition really, if you, without even carrying it. So that's before you get it in from the ammunition dump into the reserve dumps, into the gun positions themselves. And as I said earlier, you've got a 250 round bout in a box weighs 22 pounds. You can re you can only carry four of those boxes for a short distance. Um, anything longer than a short distance, you can only carry two boxes. Though they talk about you know, a company being assigned to support the, the guns uh, uh, and carrying ammunition forward, a company of the, the Highland Light Infantry, I think it is. You know, there's nothing mentioned in the Highland Light Infantry war diaries that can help us with that. I wouldn't necessarily say that there would be, but it does sort of tell you about the number of men that would have to be engaged in moving this stuff forward as well. And that's before we um, actually start to think about the uh, the water supply. So as I said, the Vickers can survive quite happily firing you know, hundreds of thousands of rounds if you can sustain that water. If you can't fire, if you don't have replenishment of water, you've got a thousand rounds and that's it. The gun is unserviceable after that. You know, may, maybe a little bit longer, depending on rates of fire. But, it, but it's largely unserviceable if you don't have any anything more than any any more water available. Again, looking back at contemporary as far as we could, accounts of how much water consumption there is, and looking at how uh, the 100th Machine Gun Company's work, your water supplies are described, there would have been perhaps about 32 gallons of water available. It, you know, at this rapid rate, would have fired around 171,000 rounds. You know, it depend, over that period of time then start to think about okay well, wait a minute each soldier carries a water a two-pint water bottle how much would have been there um maybe 300 pints of water you know across the machine gun company across all ranks in the machine gun company based on the war establishments so you, you might have then a sufficiency for two nearly 250,000 rounds the account even then talks about emptying the urine tins uh, which is something we read about as as wider i'd say mythology but you know some of these accounts are true i just think some of them are elaborated uh, in machine gun in 1918 and other sources as well where they are you know urinating into the water jacket they're using the urine tins uh, from the company as well but if those guys are using their water bottles into the guns themselves, they're not drinking themselves. So therefore, how much urine can you really count upon? I didn't get into the biological factors of, of water retention rates and things like that. But you can see that even it's not going to be huge amounts for, for, of water available. 
certainly only up to about a quarter of a million rounds. And that water itself weighs so much more, um, you know, is additional things to carry forward as well as the ammunition. You start to need lots and lots of men. And then just to cover off the spare ba uh, spare parts piece, you know, the, the main area of consumption of spare parts, because it is a wear and tear part, will be spare barrels. Where spare barrels is no, uh, uh, barrel wear is known as an issue for firing for long periods. But by August 1916, Actually, they didn't know how much, uh, how many spare barrels. The, the, the trials, the earliest trial that we, we could find for an endurance trial was 1917. And, and that starts to say that actually you probably will have about 10 to 11,000. Maybe later we've got 12 to 15,000 round slower rate of fire that those barrels would last for. And you'd need about 83 barrels across this. And that would have been required special stockpiling ahead of the operation because only one barrel is actually carried per gun one spare barrel per gun uh, in its spare part in its transit chest on the limbered wagon so you'd have had to put indents in and i'm not saying that the uh, you know in any way the absence of evidence there because we've got no absence of, we've got no evidence to say that spare barrels were ever being requested in any quantities but it certainly um may well have, have been noteworthy to say that we were going to accumulate 83 or uh, over 80 replacement barrels for this barrage fire and then oil you know you don't need much oil uh, but we do know that it would it would have been probably a r nearly 40 pints of oil needed for for firing around a million rounds based on the based on the information that comes from the later endurance trials so a huge logistical exercise would have required would have been required to prepare this and when we look at the war diaries again we don't look at the primary source that we've got there we don't didn't just look at the 24th to 25th of august uh, and what it says about that or 20 23rd we, we looked in the week before and said well what else were 100th machine gun company doing does it just talk about you know men doing bout filling men preparing spare barrels men preparing guns no it doesn't they were actually doing other operations and other you know other supporting fire to different troops around that time so they weren't preparing these logistics in the way that would have been necessary to carry out this operation. Uh, yeah, the, the the last point I guess is is one that I again I didn't appreciate. But you're firing off a million rounds, so you've got a, effectively a million empty shell cases. So that that would have been an absolute mountain. You, you know, you you can picture all of those three hundred three shell cases, the you know the spent shell cases. You know, you're gonna have, somebody's going to have to dispose of all of those because. The gun's staying where it is, and you know it's firing off the shells, firing off the rounds rather, and the, and these these shell cases are mounting up underneath it. So somebody's going to have to dispose of all of those, and and you know a million rounds is is, is going to be one hell of a pile, even if it is split between ten guns. Come to the big reveal. Did the ten guns of the hundreds machine gun company fire the one million rounds claimed by Hutchinson in the twelve hour period in August nineteen sixteen? So I think from the evidence that you've you've heard. And and I'll go back to the actual story that the entry from from six ten on the twenty fifth of August. So you recall it was um, sixty seven thousand rounds in the in the evening, uh, and then at six ten on the twenty fifth, gunners exhausted, ceasefire, guns overhauled, relief and sentries posted, parties bringing thirty boxes SAA and twenty filled water tins. Total number of rounds fired ninety nine thousand five hundred. So. A magnitude of 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 a tenth of the uh, what the story says. So you know we we did a lot of work to to try and identify whether that was a 
a mistype, a misprint, and it, when it was a million rounds. But yeah, it, it looks like the, it, it's you no know, case closed, story proven false, and we can go, all go home. I think I'd, I'd add that from a from a logistical point of view, from the technicalities of it, that what we did unearth in this was technically, if you had the logistic support, you could have done it. But I feel that you know, looking at the looking at the war diary in the first instance, and then working back what that requirement would have been, and where would it have been you know, written about. You know, if this was if this had really happened, we've got some great documents from the machine gun school, which includes their lessons learned. It actually includes actions from Highwood in September. Um, it doesn't. It includes actions from the hundredth machine gun company as well. So if you turn around and say, well, no, you know, machine gun called disregard machine gun school at Grantham, Lincolnshire, um, which home of the machine gun corps, disregarded Hutchison because he, he didn't really fit into the officer class that was there, or whatever other reasons that may exist for for not liking Hutchison's account. They did include tales of hundredth machine gun company as part of their lessons learned. This was such a monstrous claim that it would have been written about in in my opinion it would have been included in that lessons learned document it's not even like that we it's just missing from from the example of the the manual that we've got because they're leaf foil you know they're inserts they're pages they're all consecutively numbered it's not written about at all for Hutchison to be the, the only person promoting this in 1919 and then again in 1938 and you know, if, if you do your, you know, Rich started this with, with the talks about a family tree. If you do the family tree of the sources that go back to you know, even the relatively recently published material on how machine guns were used in the Great War, they all go back to Hutchison's own accounts. There is no other source for, the, for, for this. And once we compare them to that primary, that contemporary source of the war diaries and that 99,500 rounds um, number, which seems eminently achievable, matches the numbers that he's got there, is still quite an important feat, um, but very much of the style of barrage, much more believable of the style of barrage that was happening at that time. And finally, where can people learn more about your work? So if anybody wants to, to actually go and read the article that we've got, they go to the to vickersmg.blog, uh, they'll find a full, full copy of what we've put together for the First World War Studies Journal. If you're an academic, then you'll be able to, to access First World War Studies. You know, there's a published article there, but the preprint of that is available on the vickersmg.blog website. Find in there all of all of the information that me and Richard talked about. If you want to read up on any of the sources, most of the sources were stuff from the, the archive that we've got here with the Vickers MG Collection and Research Association as well. So the original manuals are online as PDF, so you can go and try and understand how machine gunnery was used that bit more. Uh, we've also got a collection here in Swindon, Wiltshire, that you can come and visit. And, and, and you know, we do put on a firing demonstration of the Vickers machine gun as part of that for, for most of those visits as well. Gentlemen, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Rich. Cheers, Tom. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman, and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.